Jay Klaus, welcome to the Consulting Pipeline Podcast. I'm happy to be here, Phil. Thanks for having me. So here you are, you're in Columbus, Ohio. You have an assistant, which is like pretty, that's pretty far up the ladder of achievement. <laughs> Tell us how you got to where you are today. Oh boy, the whole story of that. Well, I think, you know, relevant to our conversation, I actually started out more so in the startup space. Okay. Um, in college, discovered entrepreneurship as a path that was possible for people, which was very new to me. Um, didn't realize that was a path you could take. I thought that the, the path was you go to college, which I had done. I was there. I was doing it. Uh, you get a, uh, a degree and you get a job in that degree and you work that job for 35 years and then you retire. That was like what I thought yeah. the path so, was. So what was the plan at that before the entrepreneurship thing? You were going to be what? You were going to do what? That See, that was, the, that was the thing. That was what caused me to look around and try to figure it out because I couldn't I couldn't figure out what that was going to be. Uh, a lot of my family, most of my family, went to the uh, the route of education, mm -hmm. and they were teaching high school, middle school, and I just didn't think that teaching is what I wanted to do. But that left me with every other possibility on the planet that's just not teaching. Um, and so, in college, I had a faculty advisor who was overseeing the uh, undeclared program, essentially mm -hmm. at Ohio State, and she said, "Well, what do you like to do?" I said, I, I don't know. I liked writing. And she said, okay, well, why don't you just sign up for an independent study with the student newspaper and do that for a while? Mm -hmm. And so for the first year, I went into journalism and I studied journalism. I thought that was what I was going to do. I was in denial that the industry itself was like in decline. And I was like, somebody's going to be big in journalism. Why can't I do that? Wait, what, um, what, what year are we talking about here, roughly? This is like 20, 2010. Okay. Oh, you're um, young. I'm young. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Um, and so at, at that time, Ohio state, um, the football program was about to go through some like major stuff. Okay. Uh, and I was lucky that I showed up to the journalism program and in the journalism building and I would just hang out in the newsroom. And when they got tips that came in for stories, they would, you know, the faculty advisor would go into the newsroom and he would say, Hey, we got someone, we, we have a tip, someone go cover this. And I was just always there and I was willing to take that and go cover that. And soon that story became Ohio State's tattoo gate and the players selling their memorabilia for tattoos. And the tips coming in were like, hey, we've got an opportunity to interview Terrell Pryor's lawyer. Um, who wants to talk to Terrell Pryor's lawyer? <laughs> and so I'm getting on the phone talking to Terrell Pryor's lawyer asking like, how does Terrell have a Nissan 350Z to drive around campus? Uh-huh. Uh, and I learned a lot through journalism. Yeah. Um, I also realized that journalism wasn't for me, um, mostly because the industry just didn't seem like there was a ton of future. Mm -hmm. um, and around that same time, I found the entrepreneurship club at Ohio State, realized that entrepreneurship was a thing, started getting interested in startups for all the wrong reasons. You know, I thought it was like this new modern celebrity type culture and that it would be easy and glamorous and you just make a bunch of money and then chill out for the rest of your life. Um, so after college, wait, you're helps. saying that's not the case. <laughs> <laughs> Found out that's not the case. Okay. Definitely not the case. Um, after college helped start a software company that was a ticketing marketplace. And we, we went the traditional like, uh, accelerator, raised some seed funding mm -hmm. and we sold that company in 2015. Mm -hmm. Um, 
worked for the company that bought us. That was a miserable experience, but mm. didn't make life changing money mm-hmm. out of that and realized just like how lucky we were to even close the loop on it quickly and get out with any money. Like yeah. it was so hard. Yeah. And uh, I was burned out and I didn't know what I wanted to do next. So I took a product management role at a healthcare startup here in Columbus, Ohio. Mm-hmm. And after about a year of that, I realized, okay, startup life is hard, but also I don't like being an employee. So I got to figure out some other way to just make a go of it on my own. And that's when I started consulting, started freelancing. And that's what brought me to today. I'm a huge fan of self-employment, but I'm going to play. I'm pretty, also pretty good at playing devil's advocate. So Let's hear it. Um, you know, what are the, like, on the one hand, you, you'll, a couple of years ago, I don't remember exactly when it was, you would see uh, places like Upwork releasing these reports about the really bright future for the gig economy, for self-employment, et cetera. And I'm not sure that's panned out. You run something called freelancing school. What are you seeing from that perspective I guess I'm not doing a great job of playing devil's advocate. I'm just more asking an open-ended question of like, what it, what is the sort of landscape of freelance and self-employment look like from your perspective today? So I agree that there are more freelance opportunities than ever before, mm-hmm. but it's, it's rooted in mostly capitalism, right? Mm-hmm. So companies are seeing, okay, we're becoming increasingly remote and remote friendly. We're becoming increasingly virtual. So if I can hire contractors to do some of this work that I was paying full-time employees and healthcare and insurance and all this, maybe I'll consider working with more contractors. So you see a lot more freelance work available. Mm -hmm. The problem with how that gets connected to people is the real struggle. So I'm also a big fan of Mm self-employment. I'm not a fan of the idea of like the gig economy. Mm -hmm. I do think that increasingly we'll see people being paid for like discrete units of output. Mm-hmm. And that could look different ways. But the problem that a lot of freelancers face is if they get started in this marketplace, that culture like Upwork or otherwise, mm-hmm. they are in a situation that is incentivized to commoditize them and push price competition. Yeah. And so right. the best way to be self-employed is to be building demand for you and you specifically and embracing the fact that you can't scale when you're self-employed that can be really limiting or you can harness that and say, but that makes me scarce. And that makes the opportunity to work with me scarce. And if people want to work with me and that opportunity is scarce, that gives me some real pricing power. And that's where I think you have to head if you're self-employed and you are at least partially or wholly selling your time as your mechanism for earning money. I sort of disagree with Seth Godin's definition of entrepreneurship or I think it's too narrow. Like he would define it as um, you're building a system that scales by hiring people, right? Mm-hmm. I don't know if I'm doing total justice to how he defines it, but he, I think yeah. that's pretty close. He, he basically defines it as if your ability to make money is dependent on your fingers on the keyboard, right. like if you're only making money when you are putting input into the system, then you're freelancing. And there's a lot. Yeah. I agree. There's There's a lot more nuance of that like there are leveraged activities that you can do that mm-hmm. yes it's your input but the way you're compensated is leveraged differently speaking being an example of that right um so yeah i agree it's, i think it's narrow 
Yeah, you and I see that the same way. So we've got a couple things we're going to talk about here. Um, one is how you build demand when you're the scarce. I don't want to use the commodity. Most people would follow that with the word commodity, and I hate that idea that you commoditize yourself, but you're the scarce resource, right? Mm -hmm. um, and then you learned a little bit about entrepreneurship with this sort of Seth Godin approach, but maybe there's a hybrid ground where freelancers are entrepreneurial, and I'm curious your thoughts about that. Totally. Um, well, I but I just wanted to touch on one more thing before we get to those, which is uh, this is a really weird time right now. Is this a good time to start working for yourself? It's a great time to, great time to start working for yourself if you don't have any other choice, okay. right? Like, yeah. I mean, a lot of people that I'm talking to and seeing now, they're like, yeah, my job was made redundant and I've been waiting to make this leap anyway, so I'm doing it. And I love that. I love that empowered outlook. Mm -hmm. Generally, I, I always point out the benefits of beginning to freelance part time so that you can create this reputation and this demand for your services. Mm -hmm. It just doesn't necessarily make sense to cut all forms of employment and income and say, all of my time is available to buy right now. If there right. aren't enough people saying, I want to buy all of your time right now. I do think that again, there are more opportunities than we've ever seen before for freelancing. And there are a lot of uh, businesses that are doing really well in this economy. Um, but it's it's definitely different. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I think it's as good a time as ever to freelance because what we're seeing is that the ultimate form of job security is depending on yourself for making an income. Like, yeah. you are never going to undervalue you yourself, or at least you have the control not to. Um, yeah. You can be your own security blanket. Right. Okay. That's one thing I want to come back to. I just noticed uh, this is going to be so much a non sequitur for folks who are listening, but I just noticed you have your books color coded. I have a client who <laughs> color codes his, or not color codes them, but they're organized based on the color of the cover. And that, uh, that wasn't me. That was my girlfriend. Okay. She, she was over here on the couch and she said, you need to make your bookshelf look better. Can I do it? And I said, absolutely. And it's well, Awesome. My client is a huge, <laughs> huge fan of this approach. Like he's, a, I think, very visually oriented in how he uh, sees and like recalls information. So for him, it's like way better than alphabetical or <laughs> any other way of doing it. Um, thank you for that, Jay. So, um, building demand for your. Well, actually, there's one other question before I get to that. Uh, you seem to have a sort of incremental approach, like. When I said, is now a good time to be self-employed, you said, you, you recommended something that's kind of based on like incrementally moving into it. Is that is that kind of a core part of your approach or uh, talk a little bit about that if you would? Yeah. And I think this, this stems from being more rooted in startups and entrepreneurship generally. Mm -hmm. well, a lot of times when people get into freelancing is because they're, they're really good at a skill in a technical capability. And they yeah. think that the next logical progression is to start a business leveraging that. Mm -hmm. And of course, like you can do that, mm -hmm. but just as you know, you may see in the E-Myth Revisited, like that's a different skill set. You're now a business owner and that's a new skill set you have to learn. People who are um, rooted in the skill set of entrepreneurship realize and will tell you that they aren't 
better or taking more risks than other people. They're actually risk mitigators. Mm -hmm. And part of risk mitigation is kind of this iterative approach I'm talking about where, okay, if I'm already taking the risk of foregoing a full-time income or the risk of trying to earn my own living, how can I de-risk that? How can I mitigate that risk? And in the beginning, you can do that with somebody paying you full time and beginning your freelance business on the side and mm -hmm. kind of build up this demand until you no longer have enough supply of your time to, you know, meet that demand of people who want to work with you. And then you can say, okay, no more full time work. I'm going to do this. We, we optimize too often for moments and like declarations mm -hmm. to say, this is now true, excited to announce that this is true, or I have this distinction and mm -hmm. people will quit their job and say, I'm going to be freelancing full time for that moment, for that distinction. But that's very fleeting. And now you have the reality of you don't have a paycheck. You don't have an income. Yeah. Um, if you weren't optimizing for the distinction, if you're optimizing for creating enough demand for your, your time that when you did leave your job, you could be actively working as a full-time freelancer. That's totally different. That's a great way to frame that. Did you have to learn that the hard way to frame it so elegantly? <laughs> no, uh, fortunately. Well, I mean, kind of, yes. Like mm -hmm. I, I had a plan that the last job that I had, I was going to work there 12 months. I basically told the guy who hired me that I was going to work there for a year mm -hmm. while I figured out what I wanted to do next. Mm -hmm. um, at month 11, the company was shifting its focus towards a new product. I was a product manager. Mm -hmm. They wanted me to move over to a new product. And I just wasn't interested in doing that and especially not okay. doing it for a month knowing I was going to quit. Right. So the, the net result of that was I did leave my job a month sooner than I thought I was going to, which was a little bit jarring. And I had to mm -hmm. figure that out. And I actually remember like being bored and not knowing what to do in the beginning because I didn't know I was going to freelance. I didn't know that I was going to be consulting. I thought I had another month to figure that out. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, cash burns pretty quickly. Indeed. So how do you build demand for this scarce resource of you, the freelancer? What's your advice? Well, I think most consultants, most freelancers you speak to will tell you that their business is built on word of mouth mm -hmm. and not enough people talk about the words or the mouths and the mouths are actually, you know, people who are your advocates or people who care about you. They respect you. They believe in your work. If you look at the people in your life, almost none of them will be clients. Statistically speaking, almost none of them will be clients. Right. And yet we, we go into so many conversations trying to create a client relationship right off the bat. Mm. Conversely, you can have anyone in your life be a great advocate for you and be sending you word of mouth referrals. So the best thing that I've found to increase demand for yourself is really optimize for creating more and stronger advocate relationships. Mm-hmm. People who respect you, like you, know, like, and trust you. You know, that's kind of the, the adage. People hire mm -hmm. those who they know, like, and trust. All those people can be your advocates, and they can often be referring other people to you. Even clients who hire you are advocates first because they had to advocate to themselves that mm -hmm. you are worth hiring. Yeah. So the best way to build demand is just increase the number of people that are advocates for you and your business, and that comes down to relationships. So... uh 
I think a lot of us have this picture of word of mouth as, I don't know, like we see an old kind of grainy black and white film reel of you know, people like gathering around some public square and talking. And I, I feel like that model might have been true at some point, but it doesn't seem particularly true now. No. <laughs> so how does word of mouth actually work? Yeah. So we, uh, as humans, a couple things are true. One being that we are obsessed with ourselves and two being that we like to feel useful, probably because we're obsessed with ourselves. So what will happen is all day we're thinking about our own problems and struggling with them. And every now and then we'll end up talking to another human being and the conversation usually turns to our problems. So when we're doing that, we'll say, ah, I need, I need this thing to be solved. And the person hearing that is going to try to help you solve that problem. And they often try to solve that problem for you by throwing another person at it, mm -hmm. someone in their network. Mm -hmm. And so word of mouth happens in these one-to-one -one conversations where somebody expresses a problem and the person hearing it connects that problem and some of the specific terms used in that description to someone in their network. Now, the problem is, you know, very few people are out there saying, I need a consultant. Mm -hmm. And I, I work with a lot of like graphic designers and copywriters. Mm -hmm. Very few people are saying, I need a copywriter. And even if they are saying, I need a copywriter, the person hearing that knows 20 of them. Mm -hmm. So for you to be the person to be referred, you need to be the first person to mind. Mm -hmm. And the best way to do that, if you're not just the absolute best person on the planet at that skill, is to have some other specific terms tagged onto the type of people you work with, the type of solution you provide. You know, I like the framework, I help X do Y, because mm -hmm. then you have two variables. I help X type of person. So if someone is talking to X type of person, they'll think of you, or I help them Y, which is solve a problem. And if that person says, I have this problem, they'll think of you too. Mm -hmm. So that's why the, the kind of common knowledge at this point of specializing makes a lot of sense because it's much more likely that you'll be first to mind in some conversation somewhere at any given time. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned how for a lot of folks who start self-employment, their launching point is some skill, something they can do. How do you help them make that transition from thinking in terms of a skill to this more problem oriented way of defining what they do? Yeah. You need to, you need to focus on, outcomes and solutions. That's what people buy. And even breaking it down further, people buy uh, really two things. It's either rooted in higher profits, which could be equated to more revenue or lower costs. They or they want something for their own vanity. Mm -hmm. Essentially, they're, they're operating out of vanity. And it can sound a little bit different. Like people may say, I want more visitors to my website. I want more clicks on this thing. It's all going to ladder down to, I want to make more money, mm. frankly. And when you're wrapped up in the, what it is of your service that you're providing and the, how your process works, you're skipping past what that person cares the most about, which is making more money or feeling better about themselves. Mm -hmm. They don't necessarily care about how you're going to do it. They just need to be assured that you can deliver. And so a lot of people just approach too much from the functional Here's what I do. Here's my process. And they'll send this really detailed, great proposal that details the process, but they skip over assuring the client that you understand what they're trying to optimize for and that you can deliver that result. 
we don't care about the process if we don't know what the result of what you're trying to do is. And so we'll just see that we'll get intimidated. We'll get disinterested because it's like, I don't even, what's the point? Like you need to hit me with, what is the point? What are we, what's the win here? What's the outcome that we're focusing on? And then if they want to know more about, okay, so how are we actually going to do that? Then dive into it. But people want to buy outcomes. And if you can show them how a dollar today becomes $2 tomorrow, you're always going to have somebody who wants to hire you. Yeah. What about freelancers or other folks who, who just can't see that connection between what they do and some sort of, uh, you know, financial outcome or even a tangible outcome like, uh, well, just, you know, the typography is going to be better and that's how it should be. I'm picking an extreme example, but you probably get the point. Yeah. I mean, sit with it and ladder into it, you know, ladder into why. And if you need to tie to a well-known example, like at one point, Netflix invented their own typeface. Why did they do that? Why would they do that? Is it just because it looks better? Almost certainly not. There's always a business case for decisions being made like this. So start to identify what that is for the skill that you're doing. In Netflix's case, they were paying huge licensing fees every year to license existing typefaces. Mm -hmm. And they realized that, well, if we develop our own, even if we pay this much upfront, that can be repaid in a matter of X years for licensing fees that we, we no longer have to pay. Mm-hmm. Like it makes sense. Always root into that. And you know, the easy thing to do is, especially when it's in a visual medium, it's easy to say, well, customers expect things to look a certain way. Now customers want to trust your brand. This will be more trustworthy. This will gain more trust that can back into, okay, so what? Well, people who trust you more are more likely to purchase. You can lift your conversion rates this much. Usually, if you're talking to a potential client about a project, they have at least a subconscious inkling as to why they're doing that and help them self-declare that, help them surface that. If they're coming to you and saying, we want to create a new typeface or, or figure out a better uh, font family to be using on our website, start with why. Why do you want that? And they may say, well... Look at our competitors over here. Look what they're doing. We just want to look like that. Mm-hmm. And say, why do you want to look like that? Well, we know that they're doing better than us right now. Okay, so now you're, what started with vanity, what started by feeling like, okay, I just want to look like a competitor. It's actually rooted in, they're doing something better than us. They're having more financial success and we want to replicate that. And we think that this will do that. Mm-hmm. Back to the word of mouth question. So you need to create more advocates. How do you do that? Love this because it's like the easiest thing to do. <laughs> like all you really need to do is um, care about people. Like frankly, um, any conversation you have can create a new advocate. And it comes with spending as much time as possible talking about that other person and learning about them. Going back to you know humans being obsessed with ourselves right now, you're just asking me a bunch of questions about me and I'm talking this whole time and I'm going to leave this interview thinking, Philip is awesome. Like what a great conversationalist. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's because I'm going to feel good that I, I spoke this whole time. So if you reconnect with anybody and first of all, even just reaching out to say, Hey, we haven't spoken in a while. Let's talk. Mm -hmm. That is in its, in itself, like a unique thing and a unique experience that most people don't have on a daily basis. Wow. This person was proactive and asked me if we want to catch up, they must care. Mm-hmm. And then like prove that out, ask some questions about what's going on in your world. How are you doing? 
How's the family? How's the kids? How's business? In the absolute best cases, they may voluntarily voluntarily bring up a problem that you can solve for them, which is great. But in most cases, you're just going to like really strengthen that relationship, which is great. And towards the end of the conversation, they'll say, oh my gosh, I've been talking this whole time. How are you doing? Mm-hmm. And you can say, thank you for asking. Um, I'm doing pretty great. I'm really focused on X, Y, or Z right now. Um, I'm helping X do Y. And so, yeah, I, if you, you know, hear of anybody like X who needs Y type of help, keep me in mind. I'd appreciate that. But otherwise, yeah, things are going really great right now. You've now armed them with the specific terms they need in their recall bank to create more word of mouth. They leave that conversation appreciating you more. And you just do that over and over again with as many people in your life as you can and as you want. You, and you can't, you can get a little bit, um, thoughtful and intentional here, you know, people who are central to certain communities or other really well-connected people, like those are really great advocates to have. Mm-hmm. And maybe you should, or could prioritize building stronger relationships with, with those people in your life. But, um, it just comes down to relationships. So I know you've heard this one. Uh, I don't know that many people. They're, they're all like, I don't know anybody in the world of business. These are just, you know, some family and a few friends. What do you say to that? Oh, well, yeah, go one at a time. Start with who you do know. And then at the end of the conversation, say, this has been great. Is there anything I can do to help or support you right now? And a lot of times they'll say no, or they'll say something really simple that you can do. And they'll be appreciative of that too. But then they'll often say, well, how can I help you? You can say, I'm really trying to meet more type of people like this. If you don't have a specific person that you know they know that you can ask for an introduction to, say, I'm really trying to meet more people um, in the healthcare space. Do you know anybody I could talk to? Mm -hmm. And get an introduction from that person. A warm introduction is going to turn into a conversation very quickly. And do the same process with that person. Ask them about themselves. Ask them about their business. Ask them about everything in their life. And at the end, say, how can I help you? And they'll say, uh, nothing or something easy. And you can say, and they'll probably say, how can I help you? And you say, well, I'm trying to meet more people in the healthcare space. You know, if you know the space that you tend to play, get an introduction into that space and just continue to build off of that person by person. And as long as you're having a really great interested conversation with the person you're talking to, they're going to be happy to do that for you. What's frustrating is people go into conversations, especially after introductions, and they'll say, let me tell you a little bit about me. And then they'll talk for 15 minutes about them. And you're sitting there like, I, I wanted to know, but this doesn't make me feel good. This just makes it makes me feel like you're collecting me. Mm. And it, it's gross. Like networking should be about um, connection and not collection. Mm. And people don't go about it that way. So this is devil devil's advocate, Philip, again. Let's do it. This sounds so simple. Does it really work it sounds too simple it does work but it works slowly like meeting with somebody for 30 to 45 minutes or even an hour is an hour of your day Mm -hmm. you know right and like i said most people in your life aren't going to be clients so a lot of that you'll look back and be like i just met 10 people this week and i don't have any work to show for it Mm -hmm. it's it's a long game yeah And eventually, you know, you build enough of these relationships at any given time. One of those people is out in the world having a conversation and they're going to throw you as a solution to somebody's problem. Mm -hmm. But it's, it's definitely a longer game. So if you're in a cash flow crunch right now, 
probably the best thing you can do is go to any existing or former clients and try to get some work there because they already know, like, and trust you. Mm-hmm. Or go to people who are really close to you, really strong advocates that you feel comfortable being vulnerable with. And when they ask, how are you doing? You can say, I'm doing great. I'm excited about A, B, and C. Right now, I'm in a little bit of a cash flow situation. So, you know, I'm, I'm looking for some work on lines of X. And if you're upfront with them and let them know, like, I could use some help, they're going to try to solve that problem for you. If you say, I'm doing great, business is great. They're going to think there's nothing I need to do for Jay. Jay's great. Mm-hmm. And you're not going to get anywhere there either. Yeah. So yes, I do like all of my soul believes this to be true and it's worked for me, but it's not immediate. The internet gives us so much data, uh, social media, follower count, email list size, you know, all of that stuff. You start getting into any form of uh, connecting with people or marketing online. And it all comes wrapped in this, uh, veneer is not the right word, but this, this idea that, you know, the data is going to be informative. Do you believe that it is informative or, or do you, would you measure the strength of someone's uh, network, personal or professional, differently um, than like the number of connections or the number of people on who are connected on LinkedIn, for example. Oh yeah. I mean, the numbers themselves don't tell enough of a story. Mm-hmm. Like you, you hear all the time about quote unquote influencers mm-hmm. who have a million followers and right. they come out with their own handbag and nobody buys it mm-hmm. because if there's not a real connection there, those numbers don't mean anything. Um, I am probably in 50 Facebook groups right now. Mm. How many Facebook groups am I active in? Zero, maybe. (laughs) And so if somebody's, you know, looking at their Facebook group numbers, like I got 10,000 people in my Facebook group. Yeah, this is amazing. I can sell anything in the world right now. If it's 10,000 people like me who are paying no attention to that, it doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. Uh, And some people look at that and and be kind of um, upset about it, bummed out about it. But I think it's really empowering because the opposite is true, too. You can have a highly personal and connected network of advocates around you that doesn't have to be a huge number to be more impactful than a huge number with a small conversion you know like yeah. it's it's so much better to to start small and start really personal and build out from there because a lot of times these people who are just building top line numbers it's all about the next mm-hmm. and as soon as they capture your email they're not actually really that concerned with serving you and helping you because in their mind, that battle has been won. Now let's go win another one, which doesn't make any sense. If you instead focused on making the experience with the person in front of you as excellent as possible, it'll probably grow because people will refer you anyway. But even if it doesn't, you still have a better chance at having a meaningful return on that relationship. The last devil's advocate question on this topic. So a lot of us are introverts. Um, what you're describing sounds a bit like perf- a performance. Like we're doing, we're creating an experience for someone else, and and that makes us feel like our social skills, which may not be the best, are going to um, trip us up, right? So, what's the advice there for folks who are introverts and? Are really with you on this bigger idea but they're like eh, i don't know if i can pull that off like it really feels like a lot is on me to be this really great host for a conversation and i just feel bad at that um i i also identify as an introvert and if we looked at 
a spectrum, I'd probably be near the the middle mm-hmm. of it. But to me, like big group settings are what are exhausting to me. Mm-hmm. But I love one-on-one conversations because mm-hmm. I can just focus on the one person in front of me. Yeah. And that's all I'm asking you to do here. It's it's one-to-one many times, but at any given moment, you're really just keyed into the person in front of you. And it's not about performance because if it's about performance and if it's contrived, it's not going to work. But I think introverts are really skilled at listening. Mm-hmm. And what I'm proposing here is mostly just listening, mm-hmm. you know, asking somebody how they're doing, listening to their response and with, with empathy, following up on those questions and learning more and listening. Um, to me, it's like the easiest form of networking, albeit again, seemingly slower because one-to-one doesn't quote unquote scale, but like we just discussed, it doesn't really matter. Um, so yeah, I, I totally understand that, uh, point of view, but I'm here to say as an introvert, like that's my preferred way of communicating with people anyway. So Jay, I want to hear about your worst year as a self-employed person. That's an interesting open-ended question because, um, if we're talking financially, it would have been last year. If we're talking, uh, what I be, what I believe to be true as my worst year, it'd probably be my first year. Um, so what was the difference? Like that's quite interesting that there's not just one way to measure it. Right. So there's a financial measurement, but there's other ways to measure it. What, what's the, uh, what made that first year, uh, the worst? I just didn't know what I was doing. I was kind of aimless and I was accepting any work for any price to do anything, you know? And so I was like exhausted and also broke. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so, okay, uh, okay there's, there's a financial element in both years, but which was more uh, emotionally taxing? Feeling like year. you don't know what you were doing or feeling like you do know what you're doing, but the money's not quite there yet? Um, the, not knowing what you're doing. I mean, okay. every year was emotionally taxing until I really knew what I was focusing for. Like the thing about goals yeah. is that it gives you the peace of mind to know whether you're okay or not. Mm-hmm. Right. And so in the beginning when I was freelancing, just because it felt like I needed somehow to make money and to survive, that was really stressful because that's all relative. It's mm-hmm. like, did I pay my bills? Yeah. Yes. Do I feel like I'm just surviving? Yes. Uh-huh. I'm not very comfortable. And, um, when I began to give myself a better North star last year, I turned down a ton of client work so that I could save time to myself to build for the future. Mm -hmm. And so on its face, it looks like a 25% income decline from the year Mm -hmm. before. Right. But that set me up to this year have by far the best year that I've ever had. Um, and not only that, but even last year when I did have a decline in income, because I was better about my expenses, I actually took home more last year, despite a 25% top line decline. So, you know, it, when you, when you ask, you know, what's your worst year, it, it depends on what I'm optimizing for. And so for me, knowing that I'm trying to create optionality and freedom for my future self, worst year was year one for sure. Yeah. I never researched this. I saw a tweet though that said, um, so this may be I may be passing along misinformation. I apologize. Apologize if I am. The tweet says something like, you know, the reason Amazon doesn't pay 
uh, hardly any taxes is because they invest a ton in R&D, which is, you know, the tax code rewards that. So what I hear you saying is uh, something I love to hear anybody say, which is uh, my income went down, but it's because I'm investing in the future. Totally. I mean, you have to, you have to know why you're doing this. You know, a lot of times I work with freelancers and some of them are freelance consultants. Some of them are freelance, whatever it is Mm -hmm. for a lot of freelancers, especially in the creative arts, they are, they get into it because they felt overworked and underappreciated. And they felt ultimately all my work is going to the benefit of other people. Mm -hmm. I want more time for my own creative work. Mm -hmm. And so they get pulled into this, but simultaneously they resist becoming a business owner and they become the boss that they hated and they have no time to do their creative projects. Right. So, you know, for a lot of freelancers, myself included need to keep in mind that our goal is time and flexibility to do what we want to do and build our things. And if you aren't giving yourself some of your own time to be your own client, it's never going to happen. And you get into this existential place where you have like this dread or resentment towards yourself and your business. And you may not even realize why. And it's because you aren't doing the things that you started this to do. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So last year it was just like, my biggest client is me and I'm not paying myself a lot, but I'm certainly creating a lot for that client. Yeah. And that has been huge. You've taught a lot. I haven't looked very closely at um, freelancing school, or but you're also like an instructor for LinkedIn's educational product, et cetera. So what have you learned about uh, like teaching online? I'm particularly interested in the idea of using other people's platforms compared to building your own, but what have you learned? Love this. Um, okay, so strap in for this. Um, yeah, the irony is, of course, that when I went to college, I told you that what I wanted to not to not do was teach, and yet here I am I making know. the book. <laughs> so um, I got into that because shortly after I left my job, I got an opportunity to create a course for LinkedIn Learning. Mm-hmm. They were beefing up their product catalog. They stumbled across a like a public meetup presentation that I put on YouTube just so I could have it for my website, and they mm-hmm. said I think this guy could teach products. Mm-hmm. And so I, I auditioned. I went through their process, and I started creating courses for them. And then that turned into freelancing courses for them, which turned into me producing my own freelance freelancing courses, expanding upon that material. Hmm. So there are a lot of different styles for courses. Um, and ultimately some things you need to know are that historically completion rates of online courses just aren't very good. Um, back to Seth Godin. I think he said he did something for Udemy maybe. And they were just ecstatic because only, I want to say 90% of people were failing to complete it rather than like 95. And for them, that was just, you know, this incredible success. Yeah. Yeah. Um, crazy. Yeah. So you can look at that and, and think like, wow, I just need to get people to buy because people don't finish it anyway. So if I can get people to buy, I'm making money. Awesome. Mm -hmm. But if people aren't completing your course, they're not going to become advocates for the course either. And they're not Mm -hmm. going to tell people about it. It's not going to spread. It's going to be all on you to sell it. And at the end of the day, you're not building a deeper relationship with that person because they're not going to have a great experience. Mm -hmm. So for me as an instructor and as a course creator, what I want to do is push people to finish the dang courses because I know they're going to see transformation if they do that. If Mm -hmm. you do the course, if you do the work, you're going to see a result and you're going to say, man, so glad I did that. And you're going to tell some friends. 
So for me, I wanted to figure out how do people learn best? And with LinkedIn Learning, they take the approach of, and they have the resources to do this, you script the courses, you go in the studio, you film it with them. It's mm -hmm. mostly direct to camera. Mm -hmm. And then they'll do uh, animations and overlays with some of the learning points that you bring mm -hmm. up in the course. I didn't have the resources to do that myself sure. uh, for my courses. And also I'm, I'm a visual learner personally. And so I wanted to make that more accessible for people like me. And I developed um, slide decks for all of my lessons mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. that you can hear me if you're an audible learner, right. you can see me if you want that connection. I'm in the bottom, right? I used loom to record it. Mm -hmm. And you can also see everything I'm saying on the screen, which also gives me the ability to do some screen capture. Here's exactly how to do this thing. Okay. So I like that approach. I like making it as accessible to different learning styles as possible. Are you primarily doing what we might think of as online digital courses that are based on video or is yes. there live stuff or? Historically, like? it started actually as a group coaching program. Mm -hmm. um, and then I basically productized a lot of the themes I saw in that uh, for freelancers specifically. There's three courses, business for freelancers, selling for freelancers, marketing for freelancers, mm -hmm. three of these core skills that just a lot of freelancers haven't honed. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it started as uh, group coaching and I had some one-on-one -on -one clients on top of that. But these courses are self-directed in video format. Um, you get access now, this is very new, but we have a free community for freelancers under freelancing school mm -hmm. and students get access to a private section of that forum where they can ask questions and work with me directly. Do you use that free community as a way to expose people to what would happen if they bought the course? Is that a sort of, it's not like you've got a captive audience and you're just like selling constantly. I, I can't imagine you doing that based on our brief conversation, yeah. but how does that work where you have a free community and then um, a door people pass through and hand over money on their way through? Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm sure the audience here understands these business models super well. So for me, yeah. you know, for the longest time doing this group coaching, I had a paid product, but mm -hmm. I was working with five to 20 people at a time. It's not that mm -hmm. many people. I didn't need a sophisticated content marketing engine to get five to 20 people. Yeah. I just needed to talk to people. Yeah. Um, the courses are infinitely scalable. And mm -hmm. once those were developed, I thought, wow, great. We have something at the bottom of the funnel. Now let's focus on building the top of the funnel, which is mm -hmm. amazing because now I can in good conscience focus on putting energy into creating free resources for people mm -hmm. because free resources are what bring people into the mm -hmm. world. And some of them inevitably will say, this is great. I want to both support Jay because I like him and to get through this content in a much more structured, quick way. Mm -hmm. And that's the courses. So the community is one of those efforts where yes, I'm writing constantly now and creating like in-depth free articles on freelancing school. Mm -hmm. And also I wanted to be able to connect other freelancers to learn from one another. They can post any question they want and people can respond to it. I can respond to it because it's a public forum. It also has an SEO benefit. People can actually be searching certain questions and theoretically in the future and when it's older, mm -hmm. they can find the solution to that question on the forum. And now they're in that world too. So yeah, it was, it was, it's been really great this year. And this is part of the reason why this year has been so big for me there's never been a better time to be creating free things for people. Mm -hmm. You know, like this isn't, this isn't a time when people are just throwing money anywhere. And for me to be like, okay, well, 
it's actually a time for me to be creating these resources anyway. People are appreciating that and finding it. Um, and some of them are saying, I want to take this to the next level. And the courses are that option. Let's be unkind for a minute. <laughs> There's a lot of folks who are uh, freelancers, self-employed. Most of them suck at it. I sucked at it at the beginning. <laughs> um, why, why do you think most people are not good at being self-employed? It's, it's just mostly a resistance to learning the, the business skills they need. Like okay. they don't have a budget. They don't know how much money it takes for them to live. Mm -hmm. They don't know where their money's going. They don't know where their time is going. They are, um, creatives are naturally empathetic and they're afraid of promoting themselves. Mm -hmm. They think that there's guilt around selling. All of these things are solvable, learnable skills that you don't need to have any guilt around because you're selling solutions. People want to pay for solutions, but you have to embrace that and you have to believe that. But also a lot of these people come from um, not having a ton of experience, having a ton of money um, and being technically adept at a skill when they're thinking, am I really about to propose $5,000 for this? Their mind goes to, would I pay $5,000 for this? Right. And $5,000 to them is totally different than $5,000 to their client. And also, it's hard for you to get yourself in the mindset of that client because you have the skill. Of course, you're not going to pay $5,000 for something that you've learned and taught yourself and feel comfortable with. Yeah. Somebody who doesn't have that, who has a different money story and different resources is a totally different story. And you don't need to feel guilty about that if they're saying to themselves, it's so much worth me paying $5,000 for this solution than having it sit here in my bank account. Um, and so all those reasons, people, if they want to get into being a business owner, they need to embrace being a business owner. The business will support you when you build the business. Um, and unfortunately, people are just really hesitant to do that. Jay Klaus, this has been a delightful conversation my last question, what you got to promote? <laughs> just right on the nose. I love it. Um, May as well just call it what it is. <laughs> uh, two things. Um, if you're listening to this, you must like podcasts. So I have a show called Creative Elements. It's on whatever player you're listening to right now. Um, we've interviewed people like Seth Godin and James Clear and Vanessa Van Edwards. Basically, it's a place for me to interview some really big name creators to try to understand how they actually got to a point where they can support themselves with their work. Biggest surprise from these interviews, if I may interrupt you, I'm curious what blew, you know, blew your mind by far. And they almost mention it as if it doesn't even need to be said by far, all of them as a staple focus on search engine optimization hmm. and like creating things for search. Wow. Like that's like full stop. That's the most important part. Fascinating. Um, yeah, it's, it's changed my approach for sure. All right. So well, I totally the, killed the momentum in your pitch. Please <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> that's the number one thing. And if you are listening to this and you're freelancing and you're saying, I wish I was more confident in myself. I wish I was better at closing deals and selling myself, or even I wish that I had a better handle on the systems around my money and business than the courses at freelancing school, freelancing.school will help you out. Jay, thanks for taking the time to be here. I really enjoyed getting to know you a bit and hearing about what you're up to. Yeah, likewise. Thanks for uh, making this happen. Thanks for introducing me to Restream and getting some experience here. This was great.